Hey guys, this is Jeff Stanek with Figured Out Baseball. I've got a really good Figured Out Baseball podcast for you today. should be a really interesting one. Uh, we're being joined by Tim Dijon. He is a minor league coach with the Baltimore Orioles, uh, specifically an infield coach for the 2020 season. He was going to be the infield coach for the Gulf Coast League Orioles. Uh, currently when we are recording this, we are uh, at the time when we're on the quarantine phase of, of COVID-19, so he's not currently coaching, but did spend some time there before things were shut down. Um, but I'll give you the background on, on Coach D. John before we get into questions with him, and uh, pretty excited to, to let you guys learn a little more about him and, and, and who he is as a person and just what he's done in baseball. He is originally a Plain, Plainville, Connecticut native, uh, played collegiately at Western Connecticut State University for four years. In 2007, he spent one season as an assistant coach at Western Connecticut State. Uh, spent the next three seasons as an assistant coach at Plainville High School in Connecticut. The following five seasons, he was an associate head coach at Southington High School, also in Connecticut. Uh, while at Southington, the team won five conference championships. They appeared in the state semifinals in four straight seasons and three three times went to the state championship. Um, in that period of time, he coached 22 future college players as well as two MLB draft picks, which is pretty darn impressive for uh, for high school programs in the Northeast. Uh, 2016 and 2017, he got back into the college ranks. He spent two seasons as an assistant coach at the University of Hartford, where he coached the infielders. In 2016, the team won 37 games, which was a school record. The team also set the school record for fielding percentage in 2016. Then in 2017, they won up themselves. Uh, they set the school record that year for the fewest errors in a season and then reset the school record for team fielding percentage. Uh, Hartford had two infielders taken in the 2017 draft, 2017 Major League draft, and also had an infielder set the school record with a 998 fielding percentage. They were top 40 in the country in fielding percentage both years that Coach Dijon was at Hartford. 2018 and 2019, he spent two seasons as an, as an assistant coach at the University of Memphis. In 2018, the team finished with a 974 fielding percentage, which was second best in school history. In the summer of 2019, he was an assistant coach for the Milwaukee Milkmen, an independent league team in the American Association. Then on November 1st of 2019, he was hired by the Baltimore Orioles as a minor league coach. And just kind of a cool uh, aside that I think is important to throw in there that is uh, Tim's dad, Mark, spent 49 years in professional baseball. Uh, Tim, really appreciate you being on the podcast with us today, and really excited to get into this with you. Yes, thanks for having me. Uh, this is my first podcast. I'm excited, and uh, that was a hell of an introduction, man. Thank you very much. <laughs> hey, man, it's uh, I do my best to make people sound good before we get into this. That way you don't have to brag on your it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Yourself. Um, I usually like to start with something interesting from the bio, and right before we started recording, you pointed out something interesting that I thought was pretty cool to bring up, uh, that your dad, Mark, his contract ran out on October 31st, 2019, um, and then you signed your contract on November 1st of 2019, so uh, just kind of a cool thing there. 
Um, what was it like for you to grow up with a dad who was in professional baseball? How did that impact you as as a kid and, and maybe kind of impact your journey? Um, there's there's two different sides to it. One is I, I wish I would have took uh, more advantage of it when I was growing up. Uh, I guess I really didn't appreciate it as much as I, I do now. I probably would have asked more questions and, and spent more time with the coaches and the players than I did, you know, in the clubhouse trying to play video games and, and stuff like that. Um, but on the positive impact is uh, it's it's what I'm used to. It's what I grew up doing, uh, being in a clubhouse environment, being kind of around big league players. Um, so there's a comfortability factor that I think has carried over um, in my confidence or in, in being – you know, no moment seems too big in a sense. Or, you know, when, when I got to the Orioles, I almost felt like I'd been here already uh, as far as a comfortability standpoint. I think it's it's such an advantage. Um, it seems like, you know, you hear it in the draft when a guy gets drafted and his dad either played or coached, um, you know, at, in the big leagues that, that it just, it makes a, it makes a big difference is just for the, the IQ of the player or the feel of the player. You know, guys typically have a better feel and a better sense and, and even a better, like, baseball maturity about them uh, when, you know, when the, when the dad uh, was at a high level for a pretty long time. So that's a pretty cool environment to grow up in. Um, another thing that kind of stood out to me, Tim, that I, I'd like to ask you about, honestly, is just your personal journey. You started, you, you spent one year as an assistant in college and then eight seasons as a high school coach back to college for four years and then to pro ball. Can you kind of, uh, I guess, give us an idea, you know, spending time at each of those levels, um, really what the difference was for you in, you know, coaching the different age groups. Uh, and I know you get to spend a, a short amount of time with uh, in a pro organization before things were shut down, but what was the difference for you going from high school to college and then from college to pro ball as far as your interaction with players um, the way that you coached maybe and, and the way you kind of went about things on a daily basis? Uh, so my first year coaching in college, uh, I wouldn't really call myself a coach when I was at Western Connecticut. I, I just had to finish up school, and they asked me to kind of come along, and all my roommates were uh, were still playing, so I, I kind of just stayed on board, um, and I, I probably was not mature enough to, to, to really be a coach at that point. And then when I got back into high school uh, coaching, all I wanted to do was be a high school uh, history teacher and a, and a head baseball coach, head high school baseball coach. And I wanted to do that. Um, that was my dream. That was my goal. And then as I'm working towards that and I'm in grad school for education, I started to realize, like, I'm putting a lot more effort and energy into the coaching part than I am the teaching part. And... You know, and during the day in school when probably I should have been doing lesson planning and stuff like that, I was thinking of lineups and strategies and all things like that. And then finally I kind of took the jump um, when the opportunity came with the University of Hartford and said, this is my passion and this is what I've been doing, so I'm going to um, I'm gonna go for it. And um, I think the biggest differences between the high school and college – and then, you know, to the pros is kind of the time constraint. Uh, thinking back on it now, I would be pretty challenged as far as making uh, a plan for a high school practice environment. 
Um, I'm, right now I'm getting anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour to work just with infielders. And, you know, with high school they have so many different things with, with school and, and other activities that you probably only get two to two and a half hours a day that you can practice. Um, so I, I think that the, the way that you go about practicing has definitely changed for me. Um, I kind of feel like I stayed uh, a pretty consistent person as far as how I approach practice and everything all the time, as far as my relationship with the players. Um, my relationship with the players is my favorite thing about the game, working with the players, the players um, themselves, and the process of getting them better has always been number one and number two, and then the competition uh, piece as far as the games has been number three. Uh, but it, it's, I think, at the same time, things that have changed is um, I, my first year at Southington, we were really, really good, and, and we had a good team, and we stayed consistent throughout the, the time that I was there. But looking back, like, when I was in year three, looking back at year one, I was like, man, what was I doing? You know, like, I, I, I thought at the time that you had every, everything down, but then when you look back, it's like, what, what was I doing? And then year five, you look back at year three, and you're like, man, what was I doing in year three? <laughs> and and I, I, I honestly kind of consistently have done that. Um, I think it's just natural, you know, evolution as a coach that you – if you are still doing the same things and not making minor adjustments, then um, you probably haven't been working at yourself and working at the game, and you're probably doing a little bit of a disservice to your players. Is there anything specific uh, that you any, – any specific place where you've changed, uh, even maybe your philosophy or just a, a personal way that you that you go about coaching from, from when you first got into – maybe we'll say just at, uh, at Hartford – you know, coaching at a, at a pretty high level there uh, to what you're doing now. Is there anything specific you can point to that you've changed? Oh, absolutely. I can tell you, and I, I will I'll even tell you the player's name because uh, I have a great relationship with them. But my, uh, I, I think that in my years as a high school coach and even a little bit at the University of Hartford, I, I kind of tried to make players more cookie-cutter and say, hey, this is how we're going to do things. Nope, this is the way you're going to do it. Um, and then I got to the University of Memphis, and we had a infielder. And I, I'll shout out to Ben Brooks because he helped my uh, he helped my coaching career tremendously. Is he kind of was the first guy to say like, well, you know, I do it better this way a little bit. And we butted heads for a while, and uh, finally we kind of sat down and, and talked it out and. That was a wake-up point for me where it's like I, I can't make every single guy the same. And some guys are going to do things a little bit differently, maybe not the way that I necessarily like it, but if it's efficient and it works and the guy's able to perform it, then then you adjust to it. And I, I it really, really opened my eyes about, you know, hey, it's not always going to be exactly the way that you want it, and, and you have to meet players halfway sometime. And it really it challenged me. and. At the same time, I think it made me 1,000 uh, percent a better coach, and I, I always tell people that story, and, I, and I'm thankful for him, and and because of it, our relationship has been really good ever since. So, as an infield coach, and just as many other position coaches out there, or even even a hitting coach, or even a pitching coach, you kind of, I think, as, as a coach, a lot of times, maybe this is a natural progression. You find something that you think works, 
and that's what you want to teach everybody because that's what you're confident that that's going to mm-hmm. you know, it's going to work. Um, as an infield coach now, do you have like an overall philosophy? Um, maybe that, that you you have some leeway here or there, but like, what's the overall philosophy? What's the or, or maybe more specifically than that? What's the most important thing about playing infield? Like to play to play infield at a high level, you need to be able to do the the ordinary line. things. That you, do the ordinary things extraordinarily well. Um, I think that sometimes as coaches uh, at, at every level, we get caught up in trying to. Uh, teach the, you know, the crazy play and, and, and all these other things, but you have to realize the amount of, of times that a routine ball just happens and dominate that play, dominate that, that routine throw to first base, dominate that, that routine feed to second base. Uh, that has never changed uh, for me. It, it do the ordinary things extraordinarily well. And uh, Jose Flores, the big league infield coach for the Orioles, uh, I had the opportunity to sit um, on the bench during a game and, and kind of shadow him for the day during spring training, uh, during the big league game during spring training. And one of the things we talked about is, hey, what are what are your philosophies? Or, you know, or what's the identity of the Baltimore Orioles? And that's one of the things that he brought up is do the ordinary things extraordinarily well or dominate the routine play. And, you know, it was refreshing to hear that. And so we can continue to do it at the at the lower levels um and i i just i think that my philosophy is i will always give guys a very fundamental base package uh, so they can always go back to it i always try to give guys now different ways of doing things if they're doing it a certain way and it looks like there could be room for improvement i'll give them a suggestion i'll give them a, a, a different way of arriving at the same result and Sometimes if a guy's really, really good at doing something and, and you don't see any any room for air in there, you kind of just leave him alone. But I, I always try to give guys different methods um, and a, a package that they can fall back on when things aren't really going well, or at least the option to go back to that package. I think what you said it just carries a lot of weight, and I think that whatever you're coaching, whether it is pitchers, hitters, infielders, outfielders, catchers, um, focusing on the things that you're going to do the most is it's almost too simple for for a lot of guys. Uh, and I think as as a young coach, and maybe you can testify to this, but as a young coach, it almost seems like you're not doing enough if if that's you know your, you know your primary focus. Um, for for someone that's coaching infielders maybe at the high school level and isn't whether or not they're particularly comfortable coaching infielders, um, you know, high school kids sometimes have such a, a bad attention span that you almost feel like you want to change things up every day at practice uh, to kind of keep it fresh and to keep their attention. Do you think that that's a mistake? Do you think that it's more important to maybe have like a, a handful of like, kind of like you said, to have a uh, your core sort of fundamental drills that you're going to do every day and occasionally mix something else in? Or do you think, I mean, you've coached the high school level, do you think at that level that you need to change up what you're doing enough to keep their attention? Do uh, you have any thoughts about that? Uh, I think that, the, to be honest, I don't really know if there's a right or wrong way to do it. I think that whatever's working, whatever you're starting to see results in, um, my way that I've tackled it in the past is, Early on in the season, at the high school level, we were going to ha- we were going to uh, hammer the same things every single day. Um, 
until I felt that they grasped those concepts and those fundamentals and they could perform. And then we would start to get a little creative and mix things up and keep it fresh. Um, I can tell you with the Orioles, we have a certain drill package every day that we do uh, to, to start them off. And then we kind of rotate different types of practices um, to kind of keep it fresh for those guys and, and challenge them on different things so they don't get stagnant. They're always engaged. Um, and then you always add variations. Um, once you, you can take a specific drill and by adding speed, um, different variables, uh, multiple balls in a sense, so many different things. Uh, you can add time, you know, a time constraint. I mean, you can take one drill and you can go ten different ways with it, and, and that, that will keep it fresh. Uh, but I, I think that sometimes guys get carried away with, they do a drill, and then the next day they want to add all these different things to it when the player really hasn't grasped the concept or the skill itself in that drill. Um, so I think that knowing the timing, knowing your players, extremely important. Uh, and you're, you just have to, to face the facts that sometimes you're going to screw it up. And, and you, you might run a drill, and it might, not very, it might not go very well, but you have to be honest with yourself and, and critique yourself first before you, you start critiquing the players and, and understand what could I have done better as a coach, how could I have ran this more efficiently, more properly, did I get too ahead of myself? Am I not giving them enough? Um, I always say to evaluate yourself first before you, you start worrying about the uh, how the players are, are going about it. One of the things that I've found uh, as a as a college coach that when you bring infielders into your program, that that one thing that maybe surprises them the most is the number of throws they're going to make on a daily basis at practice. And, and not a lot of high school guys come in uh, prepared to make the number of throws they need to make. Their arm isn't conditioned enough. Um, you know, they take a lot of ground balls, and, and that part of it, it seems to be fine a lot of times, but their arms just aren't quite ready. Um, between the, you know, for you as, a, as an infield coach at the college level and then at the pro level, how much, how much throwing are your guys doing every day just to kind of, you know, for people that are, for a high school coach or a high school player listening to this, that wants to be prepared for college or a coach that wants to prepare his kids, how much throwing are your guys doing uh, on a daily or weekly basis? And, and do you have any thoughts, any uh, recommendations about just the best way for uh, a, a guy that's going into college for the first time or going to pro ball for the first time to kind of prepare their arms for what they're about to get into? Um, absolutely. Uh, I can tell you I, I didn't do many things very well as a player. Um, I wasn't I wasn't very good, but one of the things that I did do well, um, probably above average, is I had a really good arm. And from Little League on, I threw all the time. And it kind of came from my dad about long tossing and keeping the arm conditioned and, you know, don't rush through it, stretch it out, um, have a certain volume of throws that you feel comfortable with. And I... You know, watching high school games and watching, you know, even travel games over summers, you see kids warm up and they they go about 45, 50 feet, 60 feet, maybe 90 tops for like three or four minutes, and then they're done. Um, I'm not saying that you have to long toss or open it up every single day, but Michael Phelps got to be a fast swimmer by swimming fast and swimming often. Usain Bolt. 
he runs fast from from running fast and running often. And if you can't throw the baseball and your arm's sore, you can't play. Uh, the best guys that I've coached as far as infielders at any level, they threw the uh, greatest amount of volume and at the greatest distance. Uh, every single guy I can picture their warm-ups right now in my head at the college level specifically, they threw the farthest distance and the, and the longest. Um, at the pro level, we obviously are practicing just about every day. They're playing games every day. We definitely monitor it a little bit more. Uh, we, we kind of bucket the practices into a low, medium, or high volume throwing day, and we, we just try to monitor how many times uh, the practices fall into those categories during the week. But I, if, if I have one piece of advice is throw more. <laughs> and, no matter how much and you not throw. even not, not even not even that at the same time uh, focus on your technique when you throw a lot of guys just use their arm don't use their body don't have connection with their upper body and lower body when they throw and they wonder why their arm is sore uh, the arm is connected to the body let the body do the work great advice for, for really anybody at any age um, during their you know playing uh, and, and practice seasons um, one of the interesting things about you being an infield coach, Tim, is that you are left-handed, uh, and I, I don't know if there are any other left-handed infield coaches at, any, at this level, uh, even at the college level, that I've heard of. Maybe maybe you heard of any at the college level. I don't know, but um, how did this happen that you – I know your dad was an infielder. Um, how did it happen that you are an infield guy as a left-handed uh, thrower? <laughs> well, I – I make the joke to guys that I'm probably the best infield coach because I've never I've never made an error on a ground ball, and they're like, "Yes, you, yes, you did." And I said, "No, I've never fielded a ground ball." <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, it's it's different. Um, a lot of guys look at me like when I first tell them, "Like, come on," and I'm like, "I swear to you, I'm I'm left-handed." Um, it started just spending time with my father and, and when I got into coaching he would start to teach me things and then we would you know he would teach me specifically about infield play and I said you know if, if I'm going to be pretty good at something I have a good resource right here so I'm going to I'm going to take all this in and and learn it and I just started to fall in love with it because it was something that I hadn't done before so it was new to me um, and I've actually kind of taught myself how to play right-handed. Um, I can pretty much perform most of the drills, and you wouldn't look and be like, oh, what's that guy doing? You know, it, it's decent. Um, the only thing I get in trouble is when I when I go to demonstrate some throwing stuff right-handed. It definitely looks a little funky. Um, but it, I just I just study the game. I, I, I can't bring any of my bad habits as an infielder into coaching because I didn't have any habits. <laughs> I never did it. Um, so I, I always just try to ask myself, how does this feel? Does this make sense? Um, it's almost like I was teaching myself along the way in the early stages, and I um, it was I, I think it created a sense of relatability with the players because I can if this is new to you, it, it was new to me at one point too. So um, how it feels doesn't make sense. Uh, where you can go wrong with with uh, instructing it as far as certain cues. Um, yeah, I, I, to answer the second part of your question, I, I'm not really sure if, there are, if, if I've ever really met another uh, left-handed field coach in a sense, but um, 
I don't hide it. I let guys know right off the bat. Um, and it's, I, I thought I would actually get a lot more pushback or like it would lose some credibility for me, but it, it hasn't yet. So knock on wood, hopefully that continues. So when you're, when you're doing uh, drills with guys and you're helping them, you're not, you're not like in front of them left-handed sort of mirroring them. You're actually, I mean, you're actually doing the stuff right-handed with them. setting up drills, you know, we're using machines or whatever just to make sure that the speed and the bounces are correct. I'll, I'll get on my knees and kind of, I'll be the test dummy in a sense uh, before they get out there to see if the speed's right and everything. And um, it, I, I actually just try to perform the things that I teach, all, all the cues that I use. I just tell myself before I do it. And, and there's also the fear factor that, hey, if you don't make this play, you might get smoked in the face or something, so you, <laughs> you better find a way. That's pretty cool. I uh, try to do, well, tried to when I, you know, when I coach and play, do a lot of things left-handed and just to kind of be comfortable. And I think I can, uh, glove-wise, I can look, you know, be fine catching with my right hand instead of my left, but the, th the whole throwing motion, I, I haven't gotten anywhere close to you know, I not looking like I'm anymore. from the wrong side. No. <laughs> I don't even try it anymore. I, I just, I kind of just show them left handed and say, hey, figure it out. <laughs> figure it out right handed because it ain't going to look pretty. Um, but. With uh, another, I guess another thing with infielders, um, when, just to kind of stay on the topic of drills and throwing and things like that, when you're spending 45 minutes to an hour uh, with your infielders, how much of that time is spent? doing like kind of close-up type drills compared to uh, like fungo work compared to, you know, live reacts off of, off of an actual hitter. Um, just, again, just to kind of help coaches out to, to figure out what's going on at higher levels. If you had to break that down maybe in a day or even just a, a week, like how much time are you trying to spend on each of those areas? Um, I can give you a, a quick overview if, if I had 40 minutes. Um, with the infielders, and a lot of times during spring training, that's what kind of I was given. And um, I could tell you that I was probably in spring training for about a month, and day one, day two, day three, their practice plans were much different than than, than day 24, 25, 26, 27. Um, and it was just about making adjustments and finding the most time-efficient uh, drills to do during that during that 40 minutes, um, we spent about 10 minutes throwing. Uh, then we would go into 10 minutes of some warm-up drills, very stationary drills, you know, where they flip, some hand-eye drills for another 10 minutes. And then we would get 10 minutes into uh, machine work with hack attacks, um, kind of warming them up for live ground balls. Um, the machine work had different focuses every day. Some days we used the machine for cutoffs and relays, double play turns. Uh, some days we had them on their knees and did a, a glove work circuit. Um, and then the last 10 minutes we would go mass ground balls and different variations of mass ground balls. And it kind of it kept it. The only thing that were consistent were the, the that the first 20 minutes were always pretty much the same as far as them throwing, and then their their circuit of drills that they did that were more stationary uh, just to kind of get them engaged. And then the hack attack routines and the live fungos or, or fungos off, well, from coaches were different every day. 
uh, we tried to keep it fresh. We tried to keep them engaged. Um, and that way, like I said earlier, they don't get into a certain routine. Um, and there was a lot of trial and error. You know, there were some times that you, I allotted way too much time for, for drills or not enough time. And, and again, that goes to back to what I said earlier about just being um, honest with yourself. Like, yeah, that needs, that needs work. Even the difference between spending eight minutes and ten minutes on something, there's a difference. Um, and I would, I would always have one thing I kind of learned this year that's made a huge difference for me is I always keep a notebook in my back pocket. And I also keep a copy of our practice plan. And at the bottom of the practice plan, I just evaluate what's going on. Uh, if there's something that I want to say to a player that may maybe not be the right time to say it during practice, I'll write it down so I don't forget. Um, you know, hey, change this drill from four minutes to six minutes. Um, we set up the machines in the wrong spot for this. Uh, just little adjustments, and you definitely saw a difference uh, between day one and day 30 as far as the efficiency and the setup and the players' engagement and. Um, they they really really seemed to like it. Um, they felt that, that they were getting the most out of every day. They're getting the proper amount of reps, whether it's a slower day or a fast day. Um, and and I think the key is to kind of keeping certain things fresh, but also keeping your base package at the same time, which you believe in. It's uh, again, I think it's important for for coaches to hear this. Young coaches, guys that are maybe at a new level for the first time. I talked about this before on the on the different podcasts, but uh, as a you know, I was I was a, as a college coach, I was always sort of in charge of um, you know certain positions. I was an outfield coach, I was a catcher's coach at a couple stops, I was a, a hitting coach at a couple stops, and then I was a high school coach for one year, a year and a half actually, and, and all of a sudden, <laughs> I don't know if you hear that, but I'm upstairs in my house. We're on quarantine and working from home, and we're uh, we're getting a little bit of a storm here. So if you hear some thunder in the background, just Oh, and you can't hear me. Just let me know if it gets too loud. Uh, but anyway, as a as a high school coach for a year and a half, um, you know, all of a sudden I'm an in, I'm an infield coach. I'm a pitching coach, and I'm basically everything. Um, had a had some dads kind of helping out, but really didn't have uh, any assistants who, you know, had had been I guess at, at higher levels or anything like that. So I did a lot of the stuff myself and had to put a lot of things together. Um, but uh, you know, I guess. It was it was important for me to kind of break things up and spend a certain amount of time on, you know, this amount of time on on this because I thought it was the most important, and then this would kind of be secondary. For someone that's listening to this again, that's kind of in that place where they're they're coaching a team, and I think you know there are people out there Tim that listen to this that are coaching for the first time because they're the only person that has time to coach their kid's team, and but they're interested in baseball, they want to be better, and they're listening to this. Um, how much? How would you kind of break up time between, like like you said at the beginning, getting good at getting really good at just catching a ground ball and throwing it across the field, as opposed to spending a lot of time on uh, cuts and relays, on rundowns, on things like that? Because I, I can tell you from my experience as a high school player that I think that there are too many teams that spend way too much time on the stuff that you that just you don't do that often. You know, a run that you're going to have in a, in Pennsylvania, we play 20 game high school seasons and you're probably going to have one to three rundowns the whole year. Uh, and probably one of them is going to be difficult. Um, but you'll have teams that will spend like several hours, a, you know, 
uh, a week or spend, you know, out of a five days, five day practice or six days in a week that you practice, they'll spend time like every day on that kind of stuff. If you're talking to a, a coach who's just trying to, you know, run an efficient practice and do the right thing and spend the right amount of time on the right things, um, can you go just a step further from what we just talked about and kind of give your thoughts on that and, and kind of how a coach might want to break up the overall practice plan and what should be the main focus and get the most amount of time and attention? I think that you hit uh, some of those topics right on the head. Um, first thing that I would do, whether it's pitching fundamentals, infield fundamentals, team defense, hitting, is make a list. So, for example, um, I, I've kind of written uh, some manuals for different college programs, high school programs, and now kind of working on something with the Orioles as well. But when you, even when I make these manuals, the table of contents for the team defense, I, I list it in order of things that happen the most. So right off the bat, team defense, cut off and relays. That's, you're going to see that that happens the most. Uh, so whatever, whatever focus that you're, whatever area of the game that you're focusing on, make a list of things that happen in, in order of, of importance, in order of frequency. And then I also would take that list and I would put a dash next to it and write the date that you covered it. So if, you're like, man, when's the last time we did bunt defense? And you're like, oh, it was three weeks ago. Well, you, you might want to you might want to hit bunt defense again. And then the other thing that I, I've, I've noticed and kind of changed over the years is that if, let's just say you're going to do a bunt defense and you're going to do it for 10 minutes in your practice plan, make it 10 minutes. Uh, no, not one more, you know, not, oh, we're going to do this till we get it right. Like, it's 10 minutes, it's 10 minutes. Uh, whatever you get done in the 10 minutes, you get done in the 10 minutes because then you start adding five minutes here and next thing you know it's always end on a good one and that good one never happens and then you're frustrated the players are frustrated sometimes it's just hey we'll, we'll hit it again tomorrow and uh, carrying over those extra few minutes takes away from other parts of the drill uh, you made this practice plan that you spent time on and then you got away from it if you make a practice plan stick to it and if you didn't like the way that the practice plan went, fix it tomorrow. Don't try to necessarily fix it on the fly, and then the whole practice seems like it's unorganized. Um, and there's there's an art to it, and, and I think that the best way to, to get better at it is just trial and error and, and learning from your mistakes. And, um, you know, fail today so you can learn tomorrow. Um, I, I don't think that there's always necessarily a right or wrong way to do it. It's what works for your team. It will, it's what works for your level. Uh, but just be honest with yourself. Uh, critique yourself. Uh, get feedback from the players. You know, they'll tell you, like, Coach, we after the 37th rep of blunt defense, we don't need to do that. We're, we're done. You know, they're, they're checked out. Um, and uh, I, I think the best way to do it is in order of importance, frequency, uh, what your team needs, um, and like I said, keep a list of when you've covered those specific drills or, or skills, and make sure that you want to hit them at a certain frequency. Um, those are definitely some of the adjustments that I've made over the year because, all right, we're going to do this till we get it right, and then the next thing you know, the, the practice just takes a turn for the worse. Um, hey, guys, we, we didn't execute that very well today. Uh, we're going to figure out something for tomorrow or the next time that we cover it, and let's win it tomorrow, but we lost it today. That is, uh, in my opinion, a, a significant thing that carries over 
carries more weight than just you know what you're doing at practice because this is kind of, kind of something I had to learn along the way as a, as a coach as well is that you, you want to end on a good one, especially it's just a, I don't know, something I guess I, you know, kind of grown up with in the cages is, uh, you know, you have a round of six or eight or whatever you have and the last one's not a good one and the coach gives you another one. But that's not how the game happens. You know, sometimes you've got to sit on a bad rep for a while and, and I think that's a test of your mental strength really when you're going through that. So I, I think it's a great coaching point and, and so, is, you know, most of everything you just said, I think, is, is excellent, um, great advice for people to hear. But uh, uh, I, I talked to another guy recently who's on a podcast, and, and he said something that just really stuck with me. Just it's, it's something I think a lot of us know, but he said baseball is the, uh, how did he put it, Steve Springer, quality of bats guy, but he said, uh, how did he put it, baseball is the biggest, um, Now I can't think of how he said it. Basically, baseball is the is the the, the most difficult mental sport that you can play, and the biggest ego killer, uh, and the confidence killer that that you can have. Uh, but but I think little things like this can help players to kind of learn how to you know end on a bad rep or have a bad day or whatever, and still come back the next day and, and be okay. You know, still be able to be their best the next day. It just small things like this, like letting them sit on that instead of always. You know, and then a bad rep instead of uh, letting a guy in on a good rep all the time. Uh, that kind of opens up. I one thousand percent agree with that. Um, I mean, if you end on a bad rep or, or the drill doesn't go how you want it to go, in a sense, like it teaches both you as a coach and the players how to deal with failure. Like, hey, we lost today. Um, I, I think that sometimes the idea of depending on you know if you're introducing the skill opposed to working on the skill later on. Um, having a perfect practice, I don't know how much that really does for you uh, in, in some instances and depending on the level because if, if the practice is too perfect, most of the time it was probably not challenging and not easy, and too easy for the players. Um, and it kind of gives them a sense of almost uh, – uh, false confidence because things are going to happen in the game that's completely different than what you did in practice, um, and they're not going to know how to deal with it. So sometimes when you create all these uh, different sorts of challenges and variables and and almost chaos at times, like where they don't know what's going to happen and you don't know what's going to happen, well, it's the same environment as in the game or as similar as, you, as it can be to the game because you know when the, when the ball is coming to you in practice for the most part. In the game, you have no idea. So we train and we train and we train, and here it comes, here it comes, here it comes, and then you never know when it's coming in the game. So some of that chaos could be carried over into your practice plan where, hey, I don't know what's going to happen right now. I don't know if this is going to be easy, be hard, and it, it keeps the players sharp, it keeps them engaged, and it helps them to deal with failure. So when those those situations do occur in the game, they've been there before. They, okay, this, I've, I've been here. I, I understand this chaos. Right now we just need to slow this down and, and regroup. We're good. Opposed to, well, I've never been in this before. I don't know what this is like. This is this is uncontrolled, and I've always been in a controlled environment, and they don't know how to react or respond to it. Actually, you know, when I coached, we primarily hit batting practice off of, you know, a Coach Stone BP. We, one of the stops I had, we had a we had a three-wheel pitching machine that you could kind of set, 
um, to throw random pitches and that, but, you know, guys on their own, or sometimes it was part of practice, but a lot of times it was like after practice type stuff they did. But I love now seeing that so many teams are hitting BP off of, you know, machines throwing with some velo and, you know, a machine throwing a baseball with seams, it's going to move a little bit sometimes and it's going to move unpredictably, uh, kind of depending how it comes out of the machine. <clears throat> and I think that's such a, a good thing that people are mixing into practices that it's like, how didn't everyone think of this, <laughs> you know, five years ago? Um, but but that kind of brings up a whole a whole other topic for me that I'd love to get into with you, uh, the mental part of the game and, uh, and even just mental health in general. Um, you kind of shared with me just really briefly that, that you know, recently you had some, some struggles yourself uh, mentally, and I kind of shared the same sentiment back with you. And, and you know, it's, it's different for different people that are in different stages. Um, you know, guys that are playing, of course, go through times where they struggle mentally, they struggle with their confidence. Um, you know, once they get out of the game, I think people struggle sometimes with their identity, you know, transitioning from player to coach or player to, you know, having a normal job or, or whatever it may be. For me, it was kind of a struggle going from, you know, being a coach to right now I'm a full-time financial planner, and, and that sort of happened uh, accidentally. Um, you know, I didn't, I hadn't told you a story or anything, and nor do I need to go into all of it, but I didn't intend to, you know, be be away from baseball. I didn't intend to have a job outside of baseball, but this is just kind of how it happened. I didn't really, uh, I was at a point I didn't know what to do uh, professionally for my family to make a living, and my dad was a financial planner and reached out to him and said, hey, Dad, can I come work with you? It, it was a difficult situation um, that, that's, that's a, a very, very long story for, certainly not for this podcast, but, you know, I've had my own struggles there. W- would you mind just kind of sharing uh, a little bit about some things that, that you've gone through? Because I know that you've, you've learned a lot from it, and I think that what you've learned from it can certainly help a lot of people out there. So would you mind just kind of talking uh, a little bit, as much as you want to, about, you know, what you've been through recently and just, just how you got there and how you got out of it? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I actually feel uh, the more that I talk about it, the more comfortable I am, and it, it actually is, in a sense, a, a form of therapy to me to, to kind of vent and, and discuss some of the issues. Uh, long story short, off the field, um, and it's probably been going on a majority of my life, is I, I kind of feel that I struggle with depression or anxiety or, or something along those lines, um, and I identify that as if I'm not on the field or helping somebody or working with somebody, um, I kind of feel like I lose my sense of identity or my self-worth. Um, and then you, then you start going down a wormhole of all negative thoughts. And um, I kind of always had the mindset of you got to be a tough, you got to be a tough guy. You got to be tough. You, you know, you can't, you can't have those qualities and try to lead other people. And in doing that, um, I never faced any of the problems that I had. I never faced any of the issues I had. Um, I I was actually extremely weak, and um, within the last nine months, I've kind of hit a, a low point, and I came to terms and said, okay, like this is this is going down a bad path, and it's time to 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 get help. And I I started going to therapy once a week, and since that, I've completely been a different person. Uh, as far as being in touch with my feelings and how I'm feeling and why I'm feeling and being able to share it with people. Um, I'm more vulnerable and honest and open with myself uh, than I've ever been. 
and it's from it's also from sharing this with other people and it, my relationships with players and people in my life has completely changed because I've learned that everybody's going through something everybody has something that they're going through whether it's a little problem big problem whatever it may be and I think that we're conditioned in society of don't cry you know don't get mad um, and through all the things that I've kind of been working on um, I found that to be the complete opposite of what you want to do. You know, when you get sad, cry. Acknowledge those feelings and then you move on. Um, I, I, I've had a lot of players that I coached in the past that I had really, really good relationships with, you know, after I kind of came out with some of this stuff, have reached back out to me and said, you know, I struggle with this too. Thank you. Um, I kind of put something about this on Twitter and Instagram, and I've had people all over the country write me private messages like, hey, I struggle with this too. Hey, I struggle with this too. Hey, I struggle with this. My son struggles with this. Thank you for posting this. And um, our the Baltimore Orioles have been awesome with this. You know, we do a lot of mental skills training. Um, our director of player development, Matt Blood, has been excellent with this. Uh, we have a mental skills coach, Catherine Rowe, who is always there for not only myself, the players, um, and it's it's all the things that we're talking about right now. Um, I actually have an app called the 10% Happier app, and it gives you a meditation every day, and uh, our director of player development is my accountability partner, so he does his meditation every day, I do mine, we share um, there's like a screen that tells you that you did the meditation for the day, we share it with each other, and um, it kind of, the meditation helps you in the sense of, you know, most people think that when you meditate, you need, you need to be completely quiet in a controlled environment, and, you know, if, if a noise happens, it completely screws up your meditation, and it's what I found to be the exact opposite, that when you meditate, you're, you're just trying to be mindful of, of your surroundings and mindful of yourself, and if you're meditating and a, and a dog barks, you stop. You acknowledge the dog barking, say, okay, that was a distraction, and you go back to what you were doing. And it's, I found that to be very relatable to um, mental health. Like, instead of running away from those feelings and, and running away from who you really are, like, you acknowledge it, and you do your best to move on. And I've just made the mistake of so many years of just trying to be tough and, you know, don't let it get to you. Don't well. Sometimes you have to acknowledge those things and, and move on. And it, it's it's like life, you know. Like um, it's very very relatable. And I found that the meditation is awesome. And just having these conversations and this platform to talk about it um, has been great for me. Um, and and I, I won't say that I'm cured or you know because it's a it's an everyday process. But I just feel. I feel more comfortable with who I am um, and and what I struggle with and, and real and relatable and and I guess the, the biggest thing that's come out of it for me personally is is it's been a tool for me to help players and it's been a conversation piece with, piece with players and other people and and I, I found that invaluable. Was there anything specifically that happened? that got you to the point where you felt like you needed to um, see somebody? Like, was there, was there a life event that got you to that point, or did things just sort of build up and build up to the point where you just kind of self-reflected and said, like, this is getting to be too much. I need to, I really need to do something about this. 
Yeah, there was um, uh, at the end of the coaching season with the Milwaukee Milkmen, which I was home September 2nd or 3rd, 4th, something like that. Um, I was still getting paid through October, like the middle or actually the end of October. Um, and I didn't have a plan as far as what I was going to do with my career. Uh, I already had stepped down at the University of Memphis. Um, I had nothing in place as far as uh, a job in baseball. Um, I was still getting paid, but I was kind of sitting at home all day, and I had too much time to myself, and some of those bad thoughts started festering, and, and you know, I didn't really feel great about myself, and negative thoughts crept in too often, and at the same time, I was trying to get uh, pro ball jobs, and I, I it just hit a rock bottom point where it's like, I don't want to feel this way anymore, and this is affecting me, and I went and got help, and it, it took a little while, but I feel really, really good right now, and um, the only regret that I have is I wish I, I recognized this earlier, or I wish I was strong enough to be vulnerable um, earlier on in my life, and um, and and that's where that's kind of how it all started. It was affecting uh, personal relationships, friendship relationships, my attitude. Uh, I got away from who I was, really, and um, I, I got back to who I who I am and, and who I actually want to be. It's one of the things that that is concerning to me right now um, with with all the quarantining. Uh, you know, I kind of, I struggle to know what's, what's the right thing to do because I get that there's a, there's a, an infectious, there's a virus out there that's affecting a lot of people, but I also know that there's a lot of people that are in your situation that, that you were in that have, that are home, that can't go anywhere, that, um, you know, maybe for a lot of people, I think watching pro sports is a distraction from uh, from real life, and and that might not be the probably not the best way to, to deal with things, but I think for a lot of people that's kind of what keeps them centered or, or what kind of keeps them going or something they can look forward to, um, and you know having a lot of time to yourself at home where you're not working and and you can you can't go anywhere you can't do anything, it, it's concerning for me how many people are probably in that situation now where their their the busyness of daily the normal daily life is enough to kind of keep them afloat, but then in situations like this. Uh, things kind of come to a head, and, and I'm concerned about that. And I'm, you know, I saw a statistic several weeks ago that this was, you know, several weeks ago. I'm sure it's been uh, even. My guess would be even it's even more since that point from from that point to now. But I saw that the calls to the uh, suicide hotline were up like 300 um, percent since the beginning of the uh, of the either quarantining phase, uh, state home orders, and and um, I just hope that anybody listening to this that that is having some personal issues um, will acknowledge them enough and, and, and feel that it's okay to, to feel the way that they feel, but also acknowledge that they may need to, to get some help and how much uh, that can really help somebody to talk to somebody. This might be just a, a strange question, but how did you find somebody that, that worked for you that, that could help you? Did you, did you have a recommendation? Did you, you know, Google search or, you know, for some people I know that's a big thing is they're, they're worried maybe they live in a smaller 
a smaller town and, and not sure they can find somebody who's good or qualified? Like, how did you go about that, if you don't mind me asking? Um, well, first and foremost, I, I, I think one of the reasons that I never addressed it as early on as I wanted to is um, I was always worried about insurance and paying for whatever services I get. Um, I Googled things. I called hotlines. I started going to therapy, and it, it they will find something for you, uh, no matter your means of income, your insurance, um, your insurance situation, whatever it may be. Like there are people out there to help you. Um, you can reach out to me. I mean, I, I'm not qualified or anything, but I'll I'll listen. Um, you know, you can contact me through through Twitter or anything like that. Um, but I, I think that the thing to focus on right now is um, this is a time to, to kind of pick yourself apart and, and be honest with yourself since there can't be too many distractions. Um, it's, it's almost, you know, face yourself. Understand who you are. Like, come to terms with this is who I am, this is what I struggle with. Um, and I think it's a good time to, to, to read. I think it's a good time to research this. I think it's a good time... Um, you know, with the whole Zoom craze now, with Zoom blowing up, like, if you need somebody, Zoom a friend, you know, be there, look at them. Um, I, I've kind of reconnected some relationships with people through this time, uh, and I think that you try to find the positive in this, and um, one of the things that I've kind of understood is, like, you know, we all need to slow down a little bit sometimes and, and appreciate this world, this life, um, and I've been trying to do as much baseball stuff as I possibly can every day. Uh, I've been meditating, I've been reading, I've been trying to work out, um, I've been Zooming with friends, you know, just reconnecting, um, and I, I think there's a lot of things out there, and uh, you mentioned a distraction, and yes, I think that there are a lot of distractions. But when we distract ourselves from the problem, we never really fix it. Um, you know, if there's a problem to your left and you keep looking right, that problem is just going to get closer and closer. And then the next thing you know, you look to your left and it's a big problem. Um, so I, I, I challenge people to kind of face it. And it's not easy. I can, I can tell you that. But um, there's definitely ways. I mean, just look up hotlines. Um, Google things. Look on, on – there's there's – uh, handles on Twitter that you can follow. Uh, there's websites. Um, I actually started to become very comfortable with it once I read things by Kevin Love. Um, Kevin Love really, really struggles with some anxiety issues, and um, you know that kind of made me feel comfortable. And I mean, hopefully, this podcast will will at least at least reach one person and, and help them and maybe change their perspective. You mentioned a little bit about what you're doing day to day. And uh, a good friend, Ryan Brownlee, who was the uh, college coach for a long, long time, and now he's with the ABCA. Uh, he he posted and, and tagged, figured out baseball a couple weeks ago, just about his daily routine, and that's one thing that he really believes in to um, to stay in a good place mentally, and, and he re really just thinks that that the routine is such an important part of uh, of daily living. So, have you those things that you mentioned? Have you developed a specific routine? that kind of helps you um, 
to stay in a good place mentally and, and like if you don't stick to it, do you, do you notice a difference or are those just things that you kind of try to check off as many things as you can every day? How, how do you go about that or what was the maybe a recommendation that you got from the person you're seeing now? I'm just kind of curious as what you, what you do and how much of it, how much of it is actually a routine for you? Oh, I, I, I don't know where I'd be without a routine. Um, I can tell you on days that I, I don't kind of map out the day. Um, they're not very productive, uh, and I, I don't feel like I was productive. Um, so I talked about earlier a notebook uh, keeping in my back pocket for baseball. Well, I have like a mental notebook, and I might write my plan for the next day, literally in, in order of the things that I want to do. Um, sometimes, like when I talked about having ideas in your head for baseball, and then, you know, you have that idea, you want to get it down on paper so you don't forget it, you want to get it out of your head. Well, I think the same thing with your thoughts. So if I'm starting to feel something that I don't want to feel, or I'm starting to start, I'm starting to feel something good, I I just write it down, and it'll get it out of my head and onto paper, and it's a it's a way of me kind of clearing my mind. Um, and if I do start to feel a certain way, I also reach out to friends. Um, my routine every day is is important to me. Uh, I just moved back from Connecticut, uh, from Memphis. And everyone asked me, hey, how you doing? How's everything? How's the transition? And I, I just kept saying, hey, I haven't gotten to my routine yet. I need to get into that routine. And I was a little worried the first couple of days. And now that I'm a little more settled and I have a routine and I have things to do every day, uh, it, it, it makes the whole difference. And, I mean, just the idea of making a list and feeling the success of crossing it off. Um, reading, I, I, I'm went back to a favorite book of mine called The Saint, the Surfer, and the CEO. Um, that It's literally a lot of the things that we're talking about, um, about understanding yourself. And the book's by Robin Sharma. I, I recommend it to anybody. I'll actually pay for the book if you don't find it helpful. Um, and I, I've recommended that book to some other people. We kind of talk about the message every day. Um, I kind of talk to you about... Um, having an accountability partner in, in Matt Blood and, and Catherine Rowe, our mental skills coach. And um, I, I don't think that you always need to go through this whole thing by yourself, you know. Um, I think the more that you start to share with people, the more that you'll see that they'll want to share with you and you'll, you'll feel that you're in this together. Your willingness to open up and talk about these things and, and share them is um – I just I want to thank you personally. It's not easy to do that, whether you're in front of a group or in a, in a podcast when you don't know who's going to listen to it. And uh, just hearing you say that the more you talk about it, the the better you feel about everything. Um, I, I think it's it's something that they can help other people just to find someone to talk to, uh, even just you know start talking to someone you know personally, even if you don't quite feel comfortable going to a specialist yet or going to a therapist. Uh, uh, just start talking about it, start acknowledging your feelings and your thoughts um, is a really significant thing. And to hear it from somebody, like you said, you heard it from Kevin Love, and that made you feel more comfortable. And hopefully this podcast, if it helps one person, I think that it was worth us spending whatever it's been, 20 or 30 minutes talking about this. Um, uh, and so I just want to thank you personally uh, for, for just being willing to open up and, and share that with everybody. Oh, 
no problem. I mean, it's it's not easy to do, and, and I, I wish that I would have had the courage to be more vulnerable early on, but I had a kind of false sense of things and what being a quote-unquote man really is, um, and um, I, I'm in a better place because of it, and I, I, I think that the, um, the relatability with players is in the last few months has really gone through the roof because, you know, and all of a sudden, hey, guys will come check in on you. And and when those guys check on check in on you, it makes you feel that you've made an impact. And that's that's always been the most important thing for me is, is trying to serve and impact other people. Tim, I really appreciate the, the time and, and everything you've, um, that you've shared with us today. This is Tim Dijon, everybody. He's a minor league infield coach with the Baltimore Orioles and uh, learned a lot about infield play and, and just a lot about a good person uh, today. And I, I, uh, I've i been pretty blessed with these podcasts that we've had a lot of just really good people on here that I think you can listen to a podcast and learn a lot, but also get to know some people and, and know that there's a lot of really good people in the baseball world. And, and I, we've got one of them on the podcast today. So Tim, thanks so much for all of your time. Uh, and, and everything that, that you gave and shared, and uh, just I, I very much appreciate it, and I know all of our listeners do too. Thank you very much. Uh, like I said, this was a great opportunity. Uh, I've, I've never done this before, and, and I thank you for reaching out and making this happen, and, and uh, I hope everyone that's listening enjoys it and takes at least one thing from it, and if anybody has any questions, uh, feel free to reach out to me, and um, thank you guys again, and, and i Hope everybody stays safe and healthy during this time. And we're going to get through it sooner or later. But uh, in the meantime, just stay safe. That's true. Thank and, you, guys. And, and Tim will answer you. That's how he and I connected on social media. I reached out. He responded. And, and, and here we are. So he's a, <laughs> he's a man of his word. You can, you can find him on social media and, and get a hold of him pretty easily. And I hope that we're able to have you back here again. I had a lot of things I wanted to get into that we didn't touch on. Um, so maybe this will be the first of a couple podcasts with you. But thank you again. Um, can't wait for baseball to start up again and, and to see you on the field someday, hopefully. And I uh, look forward to staying in touch with you, Tim. I will most certainly be willing and excited to do it again. Uh, Jeff, thanks for having me, man.